Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by West Holm. We all know from home cooks to restaurant chefs to eating enthusiasts that the quality of your ingredients makes all the difference, especially when it comes to meat. West Holm, which is based in Queensland in the Northern Territory, Australia, is working with the land to create nature-led Australian Wagyu. They steward 16 million acres of rangeland, guided by the natural ecosystem where their cattle thrive. The result is high-quality Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of Northern Australia and a flavor suited to complement any cuisine. West Holm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash saver. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Hello and welcome to Save, a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have an interview for you with uh, one Elizabeth Pierce. And uh, th- this is one from our New Orleans trip, which was just about a year ago. It was. A little bit more now. Yeah, yeah it was right before Thanksgiving last Gosh. year. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, Elizabeth Pierce um, is a drinks historian. Um, who lives in New Orleans and has this amazing podcast uh, called Drink and Learn, which is also a tour. She she will take you on tour around New Orleans and talk about some of the classic cocktails and ingredients that you will find in the bars there. She's also the author of Drink Dat New Orleans. Um, this is a, a book that is a guide to the best cocktail bars, neighborhood pubs, and all-night dives. Yeah, and you probably, if you listen to our New Orleans miniseries, you probably will recognize her voice. We use quite a bit of her because she was... Just a wealth of fantastic information. Yeah. Delight to talk to. Oh, so much so. Yeah. Um, And uh, particularly, like, New Orleans is a place that's very famous for its drinking culture right now. Um, But also, alcohol has really shaped a lot of the industry there for the entire time that New Orleans has been a thing. Yeah. And it's a really unique drinking scene from probably anywhere else in the United States. Absolutely. Um, for reasons that that Elizabeth gets into in amazing, fascinating, bizarre detail. Yeah. We could have kept going and talking to her forever, but we had <laughs> such a packed schedule. I just remember at the end being like, but wait, you can you can tell me about the water? And she's like, yes. <laughs> ah, we have to go. Yeah, yeah. And right, this, this was one that went on way longer than I think we <laughs> intended for it to. Mm-hmm. Um, but was not long enough. So many of our interviews could be described that way. Absolutely. They could. Yeah. But yeah, we will let former Lauren and Annie uh, and Elizabeth take it away. I'm Elizabeth Pierce. I'm a drinks historian here in New Orleans. A good place for it, right? Yeah. um, It seems obvious. And then people say, how did you... How did you end up here? And not New Orleans, but, you know, like, how did you start doing this? 
And um, do you want to hear? It's a it's a super short story. I even if it were a long story, I would okay. love to hear it. Okay. So I helped to create and open the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. I was the founding curator there. Despite having no academic background in museums or history, a strong liberal arts education prepares you to do anything, which I bet both of you, all of you, might agree with, right? Absolutely. Uh, so um, I worked with Liz Williams for four years, um, learning how to make something out of nothing, and that mattered because the museum opened in early 2008, and of course that year ended with the great financial apocalypse. Funding dried up, everybody got laid off. I went on unemployment, drank heavily, and dated a musician, which is the holy trinity if you just need to shift your professional path. So 2009 was the lost year. It was the year there were no jobs. It was the year that I learned that both unemployment and musicians run out after six months, my favorite joke, even though we're both still friends. And the museum stayed open through volunteers, but I needed a paying gig. So I decided to take all of the programming that I had been presenting, that I'd written and was presenting at the museum, and I began to sell that to convention and meeting planners. So it was the history of New Orleans through food and drink. And after a couple of years, I saw which way the wind was blowing. There are a lot of people in this town that can talk about gumbo, but very few were grounding the narrative of the city through its drinks. Thus was born Drink and Learn. What, a, what does Drink and Learn do? Drink and Learn attempts to um, to ground the narrative of a place through its drinks. In the same way that we're all pretty comfortable understanding history through war, which is very grim, um, or politics, or religion, um, or even art. Uh, and now, I think even food, people are, are much more comfortable with, with um, consuming culture, or, or under, framing culture, you know, in, in terms of, of food. The drinks thing is always a surprise. But the thing is, it's there, even when it's not there. So even when it's illegal, it's still part of the story. And when I say drinks historian, because I'm in New Orleans, everybody assumes that means booze, but it doesn't necessarily. I can talk about the non-alcoholic stuff. And frankly, water, the story of like drinkable water is, um, uh, is fantastic and important and, um, and obviously still not available in parts of the world. So it is, uh, it's the history of commerce and sanitation and uh, despair and joy and prohibition and consumption and all of those things are, are in our dreams. Oh, um, I'm stopping myself from going on a giant water rabbit hole right now because mm. that sounds incredibly... Yeah, or just put another put it over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, however long you have to talk with us, I'm going to come back to it. But... Um, <laughs> um, but so, so uh, how did how did New Orleans become the? I mean, so many drinks started here. Mm -hmm. um, what environment uh, let that happen? So I, I'm going to answer a slightly larger question than okay. that, which is like, why New Orleans and drinking? Uh -huh. Because that is that is how people. Un New Orleans and drinking is how many people understand my city. Right. Um, some people come for the architecture, and they totally should. We have beautiful architecture. We have amazing food and music. But there are other cities that also have these elements. But somehow, adi or additionally, um, people come here and they expect to drink a lot. Or they expect to see a lot of people drinking, even if they're not drinking. And they will either look upon in bemusement or judgment or horror, um, but the expectation is always there. And it's actually part of the reason that I ended up kind of focusing on the drinking because I felt like it was a distinguishing element about the city. Like you cannot understand New Orleans unless you understand its drinking. You are not required to participate in it, but you at least need to know what's going on. And um, I think, well, there are a lot of factors, but you got to go all the way back to like the founding of the colony. And we were pretty much left alone by, oh, sorry. we were founded by France. We were left alone by France because they couldn't figure out a way to make money from New Orleans. Tried indigo, didn't really work. Furs would spoil, unlike, um, I mean, there's some tanning that went on, but not like Canada, where everything's freezing, like, forever, <laughs> furs. Um, cotton, cotton won't grow here, it's too wet. And they hadn't figured out sugar. 
And plus, they had all of these colonies in the Caribbean, San Domingue in particular, so sugar they had. And not long after, you know, they, they, they had the colony, but they were not really taking care of it, which meant that boats were not coming here, um, the food was not coming on the regular, a lot of people that were sent here were not people who could necessarily take care of themselves in a swampy environment, like thieves and prostitutes and criminals in general. Um, the illustrative quote about that is uh, there was a governor, our last French governor, Carolec, he was sent over to kind of clean up the town and he told Louis, whichever Louis it was, 1415 something, it's like, if I sent home all of the criminal elements of New Orleans or Louisiana, there would be no one left. <laughs> so the, what, that, what that means is um, you had people who were already skewed to not entirely respect the law and then had nothing to support the thought that they should. So smuggling begins quickly um, with primarily the Caribbean because it's like right there. Although things are also coming down the river, um, Mississippi River, and you're getting, um, you know, basic foodstuffs, but you're also getting liquor because liquor keeps. People wanted wine, wine from France if they could get it, but wine on a sea voyage, unless it's fortified like Port or Madeira, it's not showing up in the best uh, uh, state. Um, so, like from I think 1740, 1742 is when you have the first taverns that open, licensed, you know, by the crown, and the fees to open these taverns supported uh, the charity hospital and a uh, and like and also assisted orphans. So I love this, like, from the very early days, we were drinking, you know, for the sick and the children. Right. Um, but, but it's because, like, we were in a swamp. Life was hard. The government's ignoring you. If things are kind of crappy, then, like, you, you drink, right? This is what people do, and people continue to do in, in difficult situations. And you can contrast that with another colony that is growing around the same time, and that would be in New England. But well, the people who settled in New England were not thieves, criminals. They were very earnest. They were hardworking. They believed in, um, you know, that, that God had brought them to this new place. And the, the way that the pilgrims drank was they drank beer um, because that was safe, you know, safe, safe drinking instead of water. Um, and being a drunk was was viewed as something that could be very detrimental to the colony. If you're drunk, then you can't plow, can't build a cabin or whatever. It wasn't only about the morality of intoxication. It was about the logistics of the colony. And that was not around here. Like, that was not an issue. It was a very independent streak. Um, and also way more men than families. The women come later. Um, and so you have, you have a lot of single men in a pretty crappy situation <laughs> with uh, unreliable food, maybe, you know, hunting. Maybe the Native Americans are going to give you something. But, like, the one solid, the one through line is... <laughs> Rum doesn't spoil, um, or brandy if you could get it. And this continues even as New Orleans grows and we become prosperous because we get into the sugar industry, which I think Jessica might have talked with you all about a little bit, like the influence of the Caribbean in San Domingue. So the city flourishes in the 1830s. So now we got families and stuff. However, who is coming here to unload their raft from Kentucky. These like wild drinking, they were, they were called cane tucks, just still a word we toss around every now and then. <laughs> and you know, it's like a jug of whiskey chained to the rudder. You're pulling down the river. You arrive, you sell whatever it is you're selling. And now you're a single man 
in a port town with money in your pocket, and you multiply that by the thousands. So it is this, it isn't the only thing that's happening here, but it is happening for a considerable amount of time that New Orleans is a party town. And in fact, even when we were still a French colony, like the news back in Spain would just kind of talk about New Orleans as this like uh, exotic other. We were always framed kind of in terms of the way that the Caribbean was. But we didn't have the plantation economy yet. Um, there were people of color who were enslaved, some free also. Um, so it was, it was this exotic locale, but not in the same way that San Domingue was. Um, but anyway, so all of these like facets contribute to an identity. And that one of the pillars of that identity is about cutting loose. And drinking is an integral part of that. Eventually, that is like woven into how people understand New Orleans. And the food is coming into because of France, you know, like French is like your what you eat is a part of who you are. And and then we, you know, we become Americans, like a particular kind of American, because the folks coming down the river, and and then, you know, and then here we are, and everything that gets sort of created or, or tied onto that reinforces this very very early iteration of the city's sensibility. There's a really great book that you will not have time to read, and it is called Accidental City. And it gets you to 1803, the Louisiana Purchase. And I read that book, and I was like, "Like that's my city. <laughs> like we had, we were who we were by 1803." And then it just continued. Yeah. No. Oh. When did the bar scene develop? Kind of, kind of what it is like, like sort of what you see to today, which is actually a very large question, I suppose. I mean, yeah. There's a lot of different bars around here, aren't there? Yeah. Um. um so. I think that, again, the, the um, so there's this southern sense of hospitality. And that comes from the fact that most of the South was agrarian and rural. So this is like going back to like the Greeks and stuff. Like you have to be hospitable to the stranger because they probably traveled very far and there's nowhere else, you know, there's nowhere else to go. And so that southernness is something that becomes a part of New Orleans, even though we are a city. So hospitality is like in there. And that translates to a plus, like how can you make money? We have a lot of people coming here and they're thirsty or they're hungry. And so bars open in places where they're going to be successful, which means you need a thriving economy, or you need enough economy to sustain it. So by the 1830s, New Orleans is becoming very, very wealthy. And while fortunes dip after the Civil War, they don't entirely, because we're a port town, in contrast to um, parts of the South that were completely dependent on cotton and like that's all they had or something. Um, and we were a tourist town and we didn't, you know, we weren't burned. And people, people keep coming here. Um, so places are open because they're going to be able to stay open because people want to come here. And by, by the late 19th century, everybody was like, oh, it's a fun place to be. So I think you, you draw entrepreneurs, um, whatever that means, to places to open a business that they believe it will be successful in. And New Orleans is like, there, there are things we're not very good at. But one of the things we are good at is showing, showing people a good time. And so you want to, it's kind of like what happened in Nashville. It's like, it starts with one brewery and then you're like, oh, the brewery's not so bad. And then let's have another brewery. And then, you know, and then it grows and grows. And so I would say the, the quantity of bars is, you know, sort of comes up out of that like long line of like knowing I'm gonna open, there's a lot of people, they're gonna come drink. Also, locals drink, so because the summer's summer's slow, and so you need the locals to keep you open when it's not you know tourist season. However, um, I would say over the last 
well, like since Katrina, definitely, but maybe over the last 20 years or so, the city has been um, embracing external trends. Like we never quit serving cocktails, but the cocktails were pretty ba like basic, like a, you know, the old fashioned, the Manhattan, the standbys never went away because people drink like their parents and their grandparents here. I think the rest of America, by the 60s and 70s, people were like, screw the old man, whatever he's doing, I'm not gonna do that. But here, people would continue to go to restaurants and bars that they, their parents had gone to, grandparents, and you'd order sort of the same thing. The old fashioned never died. But eventually, you have other people who come in and say, there's this craft movement, like fresh juice and, you know, and all of that. And, you know, I mean, God, Neil Bodenheimer at Cure, he really was, like, he's a homeboy, and he went away, and then he came back, and he opened Cure, and he said, he's like, this is gonna be, this is a New York bar. This is not a New Orleans bar. And, <laughs> and he actually, uh, ended up kind of anchoring a, a neighborhood that like has been revitalized. Uh, so he saw that opportunity and he kind of could see ahead too that this could be a town that could embrace not just an older way of drinking but a newer way of drinking. Why do you think that sense of tradition um, exists here where you know, like every time we do an episode about a cocktail, like we're like, and then there was the dark time of the 1980s. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where everything yeah, sex was made on the beach. bottled sour mix. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, why, why do you think that that sense of tradition is so strong here? Well, I, I mean, I think that uh, we are a city whose fortunes have been built on presenting an ideal that people arrive here expecting that simultaneously we also believe in. So, like, if no one ever came to listen to a jazz musician ever again, people would still, like, learn to play instruments because that is a part of our city's culture. But we, and I'm it's like, as New Orleanians, but especially those of us who work in the hospitality industry, we are performing New Orleans for you. And so these elements, this like cocktail culture or drinking culture, actually it's, let's call it drinking culture, was defined early on, like late 19th century, like these, these, the Sazerac, the old fashioned, a Manhattan, like these things have just been part of this through line, this thread. And so we just kept doing the same dance over and over. Plus we like them, they're delicious. Uh, I mean, there are historic cocktails that nobody drinks anymore because they're disgusting. <laughs> you know, like the good ones, the good ones emerge. We have some more for you of our interview with Elizabeth, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Westholm. I'm a person who doesn't really cook with a lot of meat, to be honest, because when I do, I want it to be special. I'm the same, and I do love sharing that food with people. And I have to say, we received some product, some steak, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I am very eager to share it with my friends. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Westholm sent us uh, a few of their products, and they included these gorgeous, gigantic tomahawk steaks that I, like, opened the box and immediately sent a picture to my best grilling friend, like, hang out soon. Yes, I did too. <laughs> Westholm offers these beautifully marbled steaks because they have 16 million acres of rangeland across the northeast corner of Australia, from Brisbane to Darwin. They use a nature-led approach with the belief that if they balance the needs of their cattle with the needs of their environment, both can thrive. Their cattle graze on native grasses like Mitchell grass, which is found only in Australia, and roam wild, foraging at will for the first two to three years of their lives. The result is Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of northern Australia, and a quality that would complement whatever you're into cooking right now. Westholm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash savor. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy piña colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. Mm-hmm. I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks. But I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here, when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a savor team trip yeah. together. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, we're, we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this is, yeah. this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go, and I'm hungry. No me passport too. is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into the interview. So I do want to tell you something, though, because I think you're your listeners would be interested in knowing why we have open containers. Oh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So you're going to get a very short history of drinking in public in America. It's like five sentences. So drinking in America in public was legal until about the 1960s. What was illegal was public drunkenness. And that goes like the pilgrim thing that I told you about. So in the 1950s, There was an alderman in Chicago who had been hearing from the police that they were struggling with this thing that was called bottle gangs. So it was a group of single men, indigent or homeless or whatever, and they'd pool their money and they'd buy one bottle of liquor, stand on a corner, and pass it around. Eventually, there'd be a fight, there'd be some sort of trouble. And the cops said, we want to stop this before it starts. How can we do this? And so the city council said, okay, no more drinking in public. Now you don't have to wait for somebody to be drunk or to cause a fight or whatever. We're going to nip this problem in the bud. Over time, other cities began adopting this because vagrancy laws began to be tossed out as um, unconstitutional. You can't arrest somebody just because they're hanging around. And so this was a way for cities to get in front of a homeless problem, what I even call the hobo factor. And of course, there were some people who were targeted and some people who weren't, people of color, if you're poor. And um, these laws are enacted piecemeal cities, counties across the country. And then, of course, if one county does it, then the county next to it will do it because then people are just moving, right? So eventually, it becomes pretty much illegal to drink anywhere in public in the United States by, like, the mid-1970s. In the meantime, New Orleans had a vice district prior to World War I it closed, actually, because of World War I, because all of these soldiers were getting STDs, and the U.S. government was like, if you want to be a port of embarkation, you have to um, not have uh, the free, all the free love. So uh, this vice district was also a home of jazz, Storyville. And 
And like Louis Armstrong played a Storyville, King Oliver, all these great musicians. So that gets shut down. And then it's Prohibition, which like everybody totally drank during Prohibition. But the clubs are, you know, less um, less accessible, less uh, less reliable because there were still raids and things. And it's not until World War II when we become a port of embarkation again, and you have tens of thousands of single young men with money in their pocket coming through here looking for a good time. And Bourbon Street was a commercial street. It was not an entertainment district, but a lot of these clubs that had closed before World War I kind of begin reopening. You create this new district. And so it's not until after, and there's this, it's actually, I'm, I'm pulling this information from a book by Richard Campanella, which is Bourbon, Bourbon Street a Geography. Um, so he, he did all the, the hard work on this. And so it's not until after World War II that you really begin to see Bourbon Street showing up in like travel magazines or tour, tourism things. And again, it's clubs where people go inside to listen to music, to eat, and it's, it's like going to Vegas and going to see a show, you know. And new, uh, locals went there. It was classy. You wore your gloves, your hat, you know. So, unfortunately, many of these places were owned by the mob. And they were money laundering. There was prostitution and gambling happening in the back. And eventually we get an earnest DA who's like, I'm going to shut all this down, conducting lots of raids. And it becomes sort of seedier and seedier. Locals don't want to go. Um, if you don't have vice money, then you can't really keep up the, the shine on the inside. And little by little, these clubs, um, they either close or they're barely staying open. Nobody wants to go in. And so one bright day, an unknown employee opened a window and sold a drink through that window. You don't even have to come in my club. I'll just sell you a drink right here. And soon, a lot of people started doing it, particularly on Bourbon Street. The city council tried to shut it down. Um, the law was overturned as being like too vague, so I think they wrote it hastily. But by then, by then, everybody's making a lot of money. And people really like it because you can't do it anywhere else in the United States. Initially, the plan was to just keep it in the French Quarter, and they decided that it would be too confusing for tourists, which is actually what Savannah did. Savannah kept it in a historic district, but not the rest of the city. But they've been pushing it. Everybody's pushing it, because if you're like one block over, why can't I do that, you know? So, uh, so here we are. So that is why it is legal to walk around with a drink here. But I really, I always encourage visitors to try to drink in the open like we do, which is, it's not a desperate forced march where you have to um, arrive at a destination of profound intoxication in a very short time. But instead, it's just like, we pour a go-cup as we call them, go cup. My husband and I pour a go cup and we walk our dog. Or if we're walking down the street to a friend's for dinner, a couple of blocks away, pour a go cup, which frankly, I think a lot of people do in, in this country, but they put it in a thermos, you know? <laughs> um, we, I have had beer at children's birthday parties in public, you know, on the, on the levee. And it isn't this Unlike the rest of the country, where drinking in public is now associated with vagrancy and poverty, and it's seedy or vulgar, um, here it just is, it's just a delight. It's very civilized, and it isn't hasty. And if you have a drink in your hand, and this is true for coffee too, but if you have a, a beer, it'll kind of slow you down. It makes you pause, kind of look around, like, oh, I had noticed that house in my neighborhood before, that balcony, stop and listen to a musician. Like, it, it alters the way that you 
interact in public space. And the other thing that I think it does, and this is stretching it a little bit, but like, go with me. Okay. When you are in a restaurant, we all were all at a table, and if someone came and joined us, we would look askance at them. That is weird, because this is like our area. And it's like we planted a flag, right? Safer. <laughs> but if you're in a bar, people sit next to you, and they will talk to you, and you do not think there is anything amiss with that. Now, you may not talk back to them, or they may be creepy or whatever, but the, the interaction is publicly sanctioned. And it often leads to some really delightful encounters, unexpected, you know, you meet people in a bar. You don't meet in a restaurant the same way. And so I believe that the walking with the drink, you carry the spirit of the bar with you. That it makes you just a little more open to the chance encounter, the possibility, um, yeah, to engage with the world around you. Yeah, and it's, it's not, I mean, a lot of other, a lot of other cultures in America, I think, think of drinking as, like, a way to get drunk. And that's not what it has to be. No, I mean, it, it does. <laughs> it does, and it can. And we do. Sure. Um, but the other thing is, in general, I mean, let's all acknowledge, like, alcoholism is an illness, and it is a problem. There are a lot of, but there are a lot of problems that uh, are uh, around. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not condoning uh, anybody who, you know, struggles with that. Yeah. Having said that, um, we live in what was, in a country that is governed by a very profound Protestant ethic. Um, you know, how many listicles about productivity can there possibly be? You think, you're, you think you've seen them all, and there's, there's just more, and books about getting things done, right? And that is not a, uh, it's not high in the list of values of New Orleans. It doesn't mean that we don't, it doesn't mean that we don't accomplish anything, but we value, you know, interaction and family and friends, you know, all that. And so because of that, if you have too much to drink and you wake up hungover, as long as you have not bothered anybody, then no one is shaking their finger at you and saying, oh, you wasted, you know, time. It's like, this happens. Try not to make it happen too regularly. Um, but, like, this is what it is to be human. It is one of the things. And it goes, like, way back. Just so far back that, you know, as early as there was alcohol, there was toasting. And it's this way to create and engage with community. And no, you don't have to have it. But for some reason, it helps. I agree so uh, <laughs> Do you have a favorite toast? Speaking mm. of toasting. Mm. <laughs> no, I guess I say cheers. Yeah. It's also my, I, I sign my emails cheers, and it's how Abigail and I end our podcast. Yeah. Oh, so now that I think about it, we say cheers. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good one. Um, uh, do, do you have a favorite cocktail stories from some of the, some of the big ones, the classic ones? Uh, I mean, you know, you, you get, I'm sure that most of them come down to, I was bored at my bar and I poured things into a glass. But are there, are there any really, really good ones that you have? Okay, so I'm not going to give too much away about the Sazerac because I would encourage your listeners to check out the Drink and Learn podcast and listen to the Sazerac episode. Um, and the reason that you should do that is because um, Abigail and I tell the entire history of New Orleans using only the ingredients in a Sazerac cocktail. 
So the Sazerac is the official cocktail of New Orleans. In 2008, the Louisiana legislature passed a resolution making the Sazerac the city's official drink. And that sounds like a joke, but in fact, there, it, is, it is just grounded in the story of the city. And every com component of it was either invented here, found a home here, is illustrative of people who came here, whether it's French, Caribbean, American, all of these forces that kind of combined to, um, to inform the evolution of the city. Um, so that's, I mean, that's kind of, it's, it's a story I tell a lot because I, uh, because I get hired to, to do it. Um, but, but yeah, the, I, and I think really more than any cocktail I can think of, there's so much just literally in the glass. I like I listen to y'all's Manhattan one, which tends to be more representative of other cocktail histories. And it's like there started to be this evolution. There was a new product, vermouth. People were trying to figure out how to use it. Maybe it happened here. Maybe it happened there. It got this great name of a place that was has a lot of people. So everybody's like, "Yay, let's drink in Manhattan." <laughs> Um, and I have, I've read Phil Green's book, it's great, um, but particularly because he talks about like what vermouth did and kind of how it changes, how it, so the, the Manhattan occurs on a continuum of drinks, starting with the or original cocktail, whiskey cocktail, um, and it becomes called an old fashioned because people begin doing all kinds of stuff with this very basic thing. And then you have what I like to call old man who shakes fist at sky, who's like, I want my whiskey cocktail the old fashioned way. And eventually that is, that's how it becomes called that. So many cocktails, the story that they tell, they can be standalone, but they're more interesting in looking at the continuum. It's like what came before, how, how did this evolve? And it's rarely about one guy. Um, and, and I think that if, if there's any takeaway here, you are never inventing a cocktail in a vacuum. And all of your environment and all of the history of drinking is like informing you. So whenever people talk about like who invented the daiquiri, like the Caribbean <laughs> invented the daiquiri because you have rum and you have lime and you have sugar and they're all there. And so people had been drinking daiquiris like forever. And then eventually it's like, oh, it's in Cuba and there's this rum and this sugar and this, look, this is the name of a place and I'm drinking it here and I'm a white guy who, you know, is going to go back and tell my story. But... So that's like, I guess that when I say, like when you ask me like for a good story, that's, that to me is like the better story. And that's what, that's actually what Drink and Learn is about. It's like if you got them all in a line, you got all the like, all the cocktails, you would get like the world, world history. And everyone says they wish that I were their American history teacher. And I say the whiskey helps, but, but it's true. Um, I will tell you a, I, this is probably not going to make it in there, but I'm going to tell you one of my favorite stories of somebody making a drink. My friend Steve Yamada, who works at Latitude 29, fantastic tiki bar, super talented bartender, um, kind of made his way, worked his way up, did a lot of catering gigs, whiskey soda, rum and coke kind of thing. Didn't know anything about uh, cocktails. And so he parlayed a job into, uh, parlayed like this past catering experience when I think he was underage, you know. And then eventually he gets a job at Bubba Gump's. So somebody orders an old fashioned and he doesn't know what that is. And so he asked the bartender, and it was like a little guy. It's like, how do I make that? What do I do? Because there was no the internet then. There was no on your phone, right? Like there was probably a Mr. Boston's or something. <laughs> so he says, Grab the bottle with the paper on it, meaning the bitters. Just make to put some put some whiskey and sugar, mush up a cherry, and then the bottle with the paper. Oh no. So Steve made an old old fashioned. 
with uh, Worcestershire sauce. And it, it was not sent back. He made four of them that night, presumably for the same person, who thought, what an interesting, and I mean, like, at its essence, it is a bitter product, you know, umami. But, uh, yeah, so that's my favorite <laughs> making a drink story. Whoa. <laughs> you know, Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve, if, you're, if, if this makes it in there. It's not anywhere on the story, though. I don't think. Maybe, maybe he was here. I've never thought about it, but I think that, like, mm. that anchovy note in Worcestershire would actually be really good with whiskey. Yeah, you have to have a very little bit, though. I yeah. feel like he was, you know, glug, glug. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking uh, again about the sense of community around here, uh, how does... A lot of cultures are a little bit jealous or close with their... Uh, with, with some of their, their cultural elements, you know, like, or, or that they have a hard time welcoming strangers into participating in Oh, that. yeah. But food, A, is rarely like that. Most people want to share food and drink. Mm -hmm. um, and B, that is not what New Orleans is about. Um, how, uh, could you speak a little bit about that? So, I grew up an hour from here. My mother would, would say, would tell you, that I am not from New Orleans. And if you all live in Atlanta, you understand the South is very, it's like where are you from means where are you born. And for a very long time, if you said that you were from New Orleans, then somebody would say, where'd you go to school? And they meant high school. So they can or, organize, understand you in terms of this city. Um, throughout all that time, we were offering, we were selling uh, our city's culture um, happily. You know, it's a, good, it's a pretty good way to make a living. And, or, you know, offering hospitality to people who come and visit. But I do think that there was, and in, in some ways continues to be, and it's probably true in a lot of cities. There's two cities. There's the city that you get to experience when you come here that we offer to you or sell you or show you. And then every now and then you have little moments where you get to peek into the other city, which is the city where people live. And sometimes it's less glamorous because like we have to do laundry. <laughs> and sometimes there's something that's just very honest. I really, I prefer not to use the word authentic. Um, that because, like, what you know, what like what is authentic? Like everything is real. Nothing is fake. You know, you can touch it. But is um, a, a view that is lived a little more lived in, and it can be, in some ways, more magical, and in some ways, more raw, or disappointing. So. Prior to Katrina, that was like the model of the two cities, and there was a very big line, even if you moved here, that I think you were not of here. And since then, um, you know, 80% of the city flooded. It's just, that's a damn lot. And it's a thing that people um, forget, like if your house burnt, which I hope it doesn't, you would still have a job, you would still have a post office and a grocery, you would have community to support you, but if everything burnt, it's like then what? Like it's, it was very hard. And it was harder for some people than others who had resources, not just financial, but just like social, cultural resources. And we needed people's help. And so people came. And a lot of people came and they were like, there's something that's really special about this place. What they value, what you could kind of be yourself here. Or for some people, they could be their, their selves. And they're like, I wanna, I wanna stay here. And a lot of people stayed. 
And since then, more and more people have been coming as they discover this great place. This is the same thing with Asheville. Because um, they're looking for something real. Just thinking about the babies and beer. Well, we, we're half of that. Although people have children here. Like, we have like schools and stuff, you know. It's a city of families. And so there's been a, a loosening of this divide, but it's also been kind of fraught because people worry about, oh, the people moving in. But I'm like, people have been damn moving in since the cane talks showed up. You know, like, it's, it, just isn't, it isn't to say that city planning isn't important and there shouldn't be an awareness of, like, how can things change and people getting priced out of neighborhoods or gentrification, which sometimes gentrification just means fixing up a house that looked like crap before. And, you know, like, there's, there's a lot of words, there's a lot of things in that. But um, since Katrina, since the storm, so that's what we call it here. You'll hear people say the storm. Um... There has been more tolerance of, like, where are you from? And, like, I am now in the circle because I'm from <laughs> southern Louisiana. My husband's from Lafayette, apparently, that's uh, which is, like, two and a half hours away. That's close enough, too. Um, so, but I, I think this is true of a lot of places that depend on tourism. I had some women from, on my tour from Hawaii, and we had a really long talk about that. How you do a thing that is a part, inter, integral part of your culture, like the hula dance. And you know what it means in here. And you do it for people who say, well, that's pretty. And it, it means nothing. But it doesn't mean that you're like, I'm not showing you my hula dance. <laughs> Too bad. It's like, no. And you get like this little, that we have second lines here. So many wedding second lines. <laughs> and all these people are going around and they don't know how to dance because they're self-conscious. Because they're like, I'm in a parade and everyone is staring and maybe I should dance, I don't know. And that is not how second lines happen in other neighborhoods. But do I feel like no second lines unless you are a real New Orleanian? No, pay the musicians, pay the cops. Everybody's broke. Yeah. You know, you know. I mean, <laughs> musicians are often broke, and so are so is our police force. You know, like it'd be great if if the wedding planner who's like putting this together could say, "Hey, this is what this means. This is the origin of this thing that you're doing." But. I've also kind of come to a place of peace with this because do you know why we feed each other cake at a wedding? Why, why the bride and the groom feed each other? No, and we all do it. And so you'll have sweet words in your mouth. You start your marriage with, with sweetness in your mouth. So you have sweet words, right? Nobody knows we do that. Nobody knows the garter is because you're gonna go. Nobody knows that like, you know, like, I know that's not making anything. Oh, okay. But like, that's what I mean, you know? We can always bleep that. We just do these things. And we, and it's like, oh, that sounds, that sounds good. I want a parade. <laughs> okay. So we got off the drinking thing, but it's all like, connected. It really is. Everything's connected. And this interview is not over yet, but we have. First, one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Westholm. I'm a person who doesn't really cook with a lot of meat, to be honest, because when I do, I want it to be special. I'm the same, and I do love sharing that food with people. And I have to say, we received some product, some steak, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I am very eager to share it with my friends. <laughs> Yeah, uh, West Holm sent us uh, a few of their products, and they included these gorgeous, gigantic tomahawk steaks that I, like, opened the box and immediately sent a picture to my best grilling friend, like, hang out soon. Yes, I did too. <laughs> West Holm offers these beautifully marbled steaks because they have 16 million acres of rangeland across the northeast corner of Australia, from Brisbane to Darwin. They use a nature-led approach with the belief that if they balance the needs of their cattle with the needs of their environment, both can thrive. Their cattle graze on native grasses like Mitchell grass, which is found only in Australia, and roam wild, foraging at will for the first two to three years of their lives. 
The result is Wagyu beef that reflects the terroir of northern Australia and a quality that would complement whatever you're into cooking right now. Westholm believes that when nature leads, flavor follows. Learn more at westholm.com slash savor. That's W-E-S-T-H-O-L-M-E dot com slash savor. Today's episode is brought to you by Discover Puerto Rico. We've talked in a bunch of different episodes about facets of Puerto Rican cuisine, um, like the dish mofongo, made of savory, deep-fried mashed plantains studded with some kind of tasty protein, and the creation of the cool, creamy pina colada. But there is so much more there. Um, I've actually never been. You have a tiny bit of experience, don't you? Yes. Unfortunately, it was a very tiny bit of experience. Mm-hmm. I was there for about a day. I'm kicking myself for that now. I remember having delicious rums, delicious drinks. But I want to go back because, yeah, so many episodes we do on here, when we're talking about food from Puerto Rico, I want that. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it sounds amazing. We're trying to get a savor team trip yeah. together. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, we're, we're trying to get a trip to a lot of places, but this is, yeah. this is really top of the list. Even putting together this ad read made me hungry. I was like, oh, oh, I want to try those things. Yeah, as we've talked about before, there are influences there from African and Spanish and native Taino foodways. The culinary scene sounds amazing, and we want to go, and I'm hungry. No me passport too. is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. You can learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And back to the interview. And that's one of the beautiful things about, I mean, like you were saying way back in the beginning, like the stories of, of where we live uh, have been determined by food and, and certainly water, um, usually also alcohol. Because, yeah. yeah, you know, we had, we, had, we had beer before we had carts with wheels on them. Like we invented yes. alcohol before we invented the wheel. Yes. And I feel like that says just a lot about humanity. Priority. Priorities. Priorities. Well, and also yeast and bacteria. Right. Um, uh, I wanted to ask what um, what experiences with food and drink did you have growing up? Oh, um, my mother was a very adventurous cook in a time when people opened a lot of cans. And she, um, like, took cooking classes and... Uh, we made like homemade pizza, pasta, and Chinese <laughs> when that was only like one, you know, there was no Mandarin or, uh, ver- uh, or, or various regions. And, you know, so it'd be like American Chinese food. But like we made our own egg rolls. And in 1977, that was pretty, was pretty cool in a very small town. Um, my mother is a tremendous fan of the old fashioned, and my dad used to make them for her. We went out to dinner a lot with my grandparents, and I was the only grandchild, so um, I always brought a book. But I learned how to how to eat and drink out, to like to behave yourself in a restaurant, and to enjoy myself. And. Uh, I don't know what this means about where I ended up now, but there was a, my grandfather owned a feed store for uh, over 40 years. He and, his, he and my grandmother uh, owned this. And um, a lot of times my, my mom and dad would, would work there, sometimes on the weekends, you know, kind of help out. And so we would all go out to this, uh, the local fancy place in Covington. And we had a waiter, Mr. Jack, and he knew everyone's drink order. My grandmother would get a glass of Chardonnay. My grandfather got Crown. My dad would usually just get Jack Daniels on the rocks. My mother would get an old-fashioned, not too sweet. <laughs> and I would say the usual, please, which was orange juice and grenadine, not a Shirley Temple, in a rocks glass like everybody else. And so I learned, like, the pleasure of the before-dinner cocktail and that everybody would enjoy this. 
nobody's getting hammered, you know, like, it's like this, it's this part. You have the cocktail and then you have, you know, soup, salad or whatever. And, um, yeah, I just kind of think that, that, uh, and when we traveled, um, again, my, my parents were both, um, very, not adventurous in the sense of like climbing mountains, but um, we would seek out like what what was of the place, and and recognizing that the food I would say less the drink because that was a sort of a harder thing in the seventies and early eighties. Um, but yeah, like what's the food here? What do we eat here? And so learning that food and drink is. Um, uh, part of uh, cultural personality was, was something I learned early, early on. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't, I don't think we've covered this. How, um, how did you decide to make cocktails and their history your, your career? Oh, so it was from working with the Food Museum and I was doing food and drink. And then it, it was a combination of a, merc, a bit of mercenary attitude and also my own shifting interests. The very first exhibit I did for uh, the Food Museum with Liz Williams, she, uh, like I had known Liz for a while and I knew I wanted to work in food and drink stuff. I was teaching at the University of New Orleans. And she said, do you want to curate an exhibit? And I didn't know what that meant, so I said yes. And she said, we have a donated location. It's going to be on the drinks of New Orleans. And like, that's what she gave me, along with a couple of people to call. And so I made an exhibit in nine weeks. And I didn't know I could do that. But she hoped I could, I guess. But then after that, I got into food. Like, we did more, more food stuff. Um, but as I, so when I worked at the museum, I was doing food and drink without, I would say more food because it's sort of more, it's more Southern story. But then when I got laid off and I started doing demos for conventions all around the city, it is way easier to tote a bag of liquor than like a burner and pots and make gumbo. <laughs> so it was a little bit of that. Um, but also, it was just a recognition that um, I, I think, like the drink, drink culture, drink history. This is still new, relatively speaking. Even if you're just looking at like the books that people are writing, um, there's a lot more food culture being covered than drink culture. Tons of cocktail recipes, so many cocktail books, but not a lot really looking at. Um, history and culture in place and anthropology and all that and and I just thought like I live in this town I'm gonna do the drinks but over time now because I, I do some work at the Sazerac Liquor Company so I've been learning a lot more about um, whiskey and American history and then and then I get asked to, to do things so like you all talked to Amanda at the HNOC they did a rum symposium I can tell you all about Louisiana rum now and you know so this is how these things happen. You get somebody says, "Can you give a talk?" And you've never researched it at all. And you lie. You're like, "Of course, I can give a talk about that." How long does it have to be? And then you learn it. And so now I got all that in my back pocket, and for you know the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where where can people find your podcast? So um, the Southern Food and Beverage Museum has is sort of a host. Uh, if you're looking for the like a website, does anybody listen to podcasts on a, web, on a like, website? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, sure. Yeah. Conspiracy people do. Oh, the that's, oh, that's oh, true. Conspiracy yeah, yeah. people. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So you can find the Drink and Learn podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts, and uh, you can also uh, find me at Drink and Learn. I drink and learn in all the ways. Drinkandlearn.com. I drink and learn on Instagram. I drink, you know, all the drink and learn. Um, I do have a book out, which I don't know if you all... Nope, nope, yes. It's called Drink Dad, which is a guide to the bars of New Orleans. I visited them all, so you don't have to. 
and it gives you uh, kind of insight into um, the sensibility, the personality of each bar. It's not a review, it's just, because people ask me all the time, what's the best bar in New Orleans? And I say, you know, did you just get engaged? Or do you want to drink to forget your name? Cheek. Very different places. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, and come take a tour, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. 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 I, I don't know if you're going to say, like, how you'll introduce me or where, like, because um, I know you, because you all talk about other stuff sure. leading up to and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you should come take a tour with me. This brings us to the end of this interview. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed doing it. Yes. Yes. Uh, and if anyone's working on some interesting cocktails around this this season, we would love to hear about those. Oh, absolutely. Always. Yes. And also, I have a lot of friends, actually, that are going to New Orleans, mostly for New Year's. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So if any of you listeners are, are going that way or, or you live there and you want to tell us your cocktail tales— yeah. We would love to hear them. We would. Uh, or or uh, book a tour with Elizabeth yeah. uh, with a drink and learn. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, and we would love to hear from you. If you would like to email us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SaverPod. And we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit tomboyx.com to shop. Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash covers your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized, soft and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. For the third year, Olay Body is a proud sponsor of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride and supporter of the LGBTQ plus community. So this pride glow with confidence, not just all month, but all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And hmm. not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer.